she shouted. A rat is hanging from the chandelier! The party, as I have noted, was loud. The minstrels were strumming and singing, the people were laughing and eating, and the man with the jingling cap was jingling and juggling. No one in the midst of all of this merriment heard the pea. No one except for Rascuro. Rat. He had never been aware of what an ugly word it was. Rat. Right in the middle of all that beauty, it immediately became clear that it was an extremely distasteful syllable. Rat. A curse, an insult, a word totally without light. And not until he heard it from the mouth of the princess did Rascuro realize that he did not like being a rat, that he did not want to be a rat. This revelation hit Rascuro with such force that it made him lose grip on the chandelier. The rat fell, reader. He fell. And alas, he fell right directly into the queen's soup. Chapter 21, The Queen's Last Word. The queen loved soup. She loved soup more than anything in the world except for the princess P and the king. And because the queen loved it, soup was served in the castle for every banquet, every lunch, and every dinner. What soup it was! Cooks' love and admiration for the queen and her palate moved the broth that she concocted from the level of mere food to a high art. On this particular day, for this particular banquet, the cook had outdone herself. The soup was a masterwork, a delicate mingling of chicken and watercress and garlic. Ah, Rascuro had surfaced from the bottom of the queen's capgas bowl and could not help but taking a few appreciative sips. Oh, lovely, he said, distracted for a moment from the misery of his existence. Delightful. See, shouted the pea, see, she stood up and pointed her finger right at Rascuro. It's a rat. I told you, I told you it's a rat. He was hanging from the chandelier and now he's in mama's soup. The musicians stopped playing their guitars. The juggler stopped juggling. The noble people stopped eating. The queen looked at Rascuro. Rascuro looked at the queen. Reader, in the spirit of honesty, I must utter a difficult, unsavory truth. Rats are not beautiful creatures. They're not even cute. They are really rather nasty beasts, particularly if one happens to appear in your bowl of soup with pieces of watercress clinging to its whiskers. There was a long moment of silence and then Rascuro said to the queen, I beg your pardon, 
In response, the queen flung her spoon in the air and made an incredible noise. A noise that was in no way worthy of a queen. A noise somewhere between the neigh of a horse and the squeal of a pig. A noise that sounded something like this. And then she said, there's a rat in my soup. The queen was really a simple soul and always her whole life had done nothing except state the overly obvious. She died as she lived. There's a rat in my soup were the last words she uttered. She clutched her chest and fell over backwards. Her royal chair hit the floor with a thump and the banquet hall exploded. Spoons were dropped. Chairs were flung back. Save her, thundered the king. You must save her. All the king's men ran and tried to rescue the queen. Rescuro jumped out of the bowl of soup. He felt that under the circumstances, it would be best if he left. As he crawled across the tablecloth, he remembered the words of the prisoner in the dungeon. His regret that he did not look back at his daughter as he left. And so, Rescuro turned. He looked back. And he saw that the princess was glaring at him. Her eyes were filled with disgust and anger. Go back to the dungeon, is what the look in her eyes said to him. Go back into the darkness where you belong. This reader broke Roscuro's heart. Do you think that rats do not have hearts? Wrong. All living things have a heart. And the heart of any living thing can be broken. If the rat had not looked over his shoulder, perhaps his heart would not have been broken. And it is possible then that I would not have a story to tell. But reader... He did look. Chapter 22. He puts his heart together again. Roscuro hurried from the banquet hall. A rat, he said. He put a paw over his heart. I'm a rat and there's no light for rats. There'll be no light for me. The king's men were still bent over the queen. The king was still shouting, save her, save her and the queen was still dead. Of course, Roscuro encountered the queen's royal soup spoon lying on the floor. I will have something beautiful. I am a rat, but I will have Bocelli laugh. I will Bocelli said he picked up the spoon and put it on his head. Yeah, said Roscuro. I will have something beautiful, and I will have revenge. Both. A rat. A rat. There are those hearts, reader, that never mend again once they are broken. Or if they do mend, they heal themselves in a crooked and lopsided way as if sewn together by a careless craftsman. Such was the fate of Chiaroscuro. His heart was broken. Picking up the spoon and placing it on his head, speaking of revenge, these things helped him put his heart back together again. But... It was, alas, put together wrong. 
Where is that rat? shouted the king. Find that rat. Huh. If you want me, I will be in the dungeon, muttered Rescuro. In the darkness. Chapter 23. Consequences. There were, of course, dire consequences of Rescuro's behavior. Every action, reader, no matter how small, has a consequence. For instance, the young Rescuro gnawed on Gregory the jailer's rope. Because he gnawed on the rope, a match was lit in his face. And because the match was lit into his face, his soul was set afire. The rat's soul was set afire, and because of this, he journeyed upstairs seeking light. Upstairs, in the banquet hall, the princess pea spotted him and called out the word rat. And because of this, Rescuro fell into the queen's soup. And because the rat fell into the queen's soup, the queen died. You see, can't you, how everything is related to everything else. You can see quite clearly how every action has a consequence. For instance, if, reader, will you indulge me and allow me to continue this meditation on consequences? Because the queen died while eating soup. The heartbroken king outlawed soup. And because soup was outlawed, so were all the instruments involved in making soup and eating soup. So spoons, bowls, and kettles. These things were collected from all of the people in the kingdom of Dor, and they were piled in the dungeon. And because Rescuro was dazzled by the light of one match and journeyed upstairs and fell into the queen's soup and the queen died and the king ordered the death of every rat in the land, the king's men went bravely into the dungeon to kill the rats. But the thing about killing a rat is that you must first find the rat. And if a rat does not want to be found, reader, he will not be found. The king's men succeeded only in getting lost in the dungeon's torturous mazes. Some of them, in fact, did not ever find their way out again and died there in the dark heart of the castle. And so, the killing of all rats was not successful, and in desperation, King Philip declared that rats were illegal. He declared them outlaws. This, of course, was a ridiculous law, as rats are outlaws to begin with. How can you outlaw an outlaw? This is a waste of time and energy, but... The king officially decreed all rats in the kingdom of Dor were outlaws and should be treated as such. When you are king, you may make as many ridiculous laws as you like. And that is what being a king is all about. But, reader, we must not forget that King Philip loved the queen and that without her, he was lost This is the danger of loving, no matter how powerful you are, no matter how many kingdoms you rule, you cannot stop those you love from dying. Making soup illegal, outlawing rats, these things soothe the poor king's heart, and so we must forgive him. And what about the outlawed rats? What about one 
Outlawed Rat in particular? What about Chiaroscuro? In the darkness of the dungeon, he sat in his nest with the spoon atop his head. He set to work fashioning for himself a kingly cape made out of the scrap of the red tablecloth. And as he worked, old one-eared Vicelli Remorso sat next to him, swinging his locket back and forth and back and forth, saying, You see what comes from a rat going up the stairs. I hope you have learned your lesson. Your job in this world is to make others suffer. Yeah, that is what I am going to do, muttered Rescuro. I am going to make the princess suffer for how she looked at me. And as Rescuro worked and planned, the jailer Gregory held tight to his rope and made his own way through the darkness. And in a dank cell, the prisoner who had once had the red tablecloth and now had nothing, spent his days and nights weeping quietly. High above the dungeon, upstairs, in the castle, a small mouse stood alone one evening as his brothers and sisters sniffed for crumbs. He stood with his head cocked to one side, listening to a sweet sound he did not yet have a name for. There would be consequences of the mouse's love for music. You, reader, already know some of those consequences. Because of the music, the mouse would find his way to a princess. He would fall in love. And speaking of consequences, the same evening that Despero stood inside the castle, hearing music for the first time, Outside the castle, in the gloom of dusk, more consequences drew near. A wagon driven by a king's soldier, piled high with spoons and bowls and kettles, was making its way to the castle. And beside the soldier, there sat a young girl with ears that looked like nothing so much as pieces of cauliflower stuck to either side of her head. The girl's name reader was Migri Sow. And although she didn't know it yet, she would be instrumental in helping the rat work his revenge. The Tale of Migri Sow Chapter 24, A Handful of Cigarettes, A Red Tablecloth, and a hen. Again, reader, we must go backward before we can go forward. With that said, here begins a short history of the life and times of Migri Sow, a girl born into this world many years before the mouse Despero and the rat Chiaroscuro, a girl born far from the castle, a girl named after her father's favorite prize-winning pig. Migri Sow was six years old when her mother, holding on to Meg's hand and staring directly into Meg's eyes, died. Ma, said Meg, Ma, couldn't you just stay here with me? Oh, said her mother, who is that? Who is that holding my hand? It's me, Ma, Megri Sow. Ah, child, let me go. But I want you to stay here, said Meg, wiping a fist at her runny nose and then at her runny eyes. You want, said her mother. Yes, said Meg. I want. Ah, child, 
What does it matter what you want, said her mother. She squeezed Meg's hand once, twice, and then she died, leaving Meg alone with her father, who, on a market day in spring, soon after his wife's death, sold his daughter into service for a handful of cigarettes, a red tablecloth, and a hen. Pa, said Meg, when her father was walking away from her with the hen in his arms and cigarette in his mouth and red tablecloth draped over his shoulders like a cape. Go on, Meg, he said. You belong to that man now. But I don't want to, Pa, she said. I want to go with you. She took hold of the red tablecloth and tugged on it. Lord, child, her father said, who is asking you what you want? Go on now. He untangled her fingers from the cloth and turned her in the direction of the man who bought her. Meg watched her father walk away, the red tablecloth billowing out behind him. He left his daughter and, reader, as you already know, he did not look back, not even once. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine your father selling you for a tablecloth, a hen, and a handful of cigarettes? Close your eyes, please, and consider it just for a moment. Done? Okay. I hope that the hair on the back of your neck stood up as you thought of Mig's fate and how it would be if it were your own. Poor Mig. What would become of her? You must, frightened though you might be, read on and see for yourself. Reader, this is your duty. Chapter 25, A Vicious Circle Megri Sow called the man who purchased her uncle, as he said she must. And also, as he said she must, Meg tended uncle's sheep and cooked uncle's food and scrubbed uncle's kettle. She did all this without a word of thanks or praise from the man himself. Another unfortunate fact of life with uncle was that he very much liked giving Meg what he referred to as a good clout to the ear. In fairness to uncle, it must be reported that he always did inquire whether or not Meg was interested in receiving a clout in the air. Their daily exchanges went something like this. Uncle, I thought I told you to clean the kettle. Meg, I cleaned it, Uncle. I cleaned it good. Uncle, odds filthy. You should have to be punished, won't you? Meg, gore. Uncle, I cleaned the kettle. Uncle, are you calling me a liar girl? Meg, no, uncle. Uncle, do you want a good clout to the ear then? Meg, no, thank you, uncle. I don't. Alas, uncle seemed to be as entirely concerned with what Meg wanted as her mother and father had been. The disgust clout to the ear was always delivered. Delivered, I am afraid, with a great deal of enthusiasm on uncle's part, and received absolutely no enthusiasm whatsoever at all on Mig's part. The clouts were alarmingly frequent, and Uncle was scrupulously fair 
in paying attention to both the left and right side of Megri Sow. So it was that after a time, the young Meg's ears came to resemble not so much ears as pieces of cauliflower stuck to either side of her head, and they became about as useful to her as pieces of cauliflower. That is to say that they all but ceased their functioning as ears. Words for Meg lost their sharp edges and then lost their edges altogether and became blurry blankety things that she had a great deal of trouble making sense of at all. That's about what she heard. The less Meg heard, the less she understood. The less she understood, the more things she did wrong, and the more things she did wrong, the more clouts to the ear she received, and the less she heard. That is what is known as a vicious circle. And Megary Sow was caught right in the center of it, which is, reader, not where anyone would want to be. But then, as you know, what Migri Sow wanted had never been much concern to anyone. Chapter 26, Royalty. When Mig turned seven years old, there was no cake, no celebration, no singing, no present, no acknowledgement of her birthday at all other than Mig saying, Uncle, today I'm seven years old. And Uncle saying in return, Did I ask you how old you were? Get out of my face before I give you a good clout to the ear. A few hours after receiving her birthday clout to the ear, Meg was out in the field with Uncle's sheep when she saw something glittering and glowing on the horizon. She thought for a moment that it was the sun, but she turned and saw that the sun was in the west where it should be, sinking into the earth. The thing that shone so brightly was something else. Mig stood in the field and shaded her eyes with her left hand and watched the brilliant light draw closer and closer and closer until it revealed itself to be King Philip and his Queen Rosemary and their daughter, the young Princess P. The royal family was surrounded by knights in shining armor and horses in shining armor, and atop each member of the royal family's head was a golden crown, and they were all, the king and the queen and the princess, dressed in robes decorated with jewels and sequins that glittered and glowed and captured the light of the setting sun and reflected it back. Gore, breathed Meg. The Princess P was riding on a white horse that picked up its legs very high and sent them down very daintily. The pea saw Meg standing and staring, and she raised her hand to her. Hello, said the princess pea, and she called out merrily, hello, and she waved her hand again. Meg did not wave back. Instead, she stood and watched open-mouthed as the perfect, beautiful family passed her by. 
Papa, called the princess to the king, what's wrong with that girl? She will not wave to me. Never mind, said the king. It is of no consequence, my dear. But I am a princess, and I waved to her, so she should wave back. Meg, for her part, continued to stare. Looking at the royal family had awakened some deep and slumbering need in her. It was as if a small candle had become lit in her interior and sparked to life by the brilliance of the king and the queen and the princess. For the first time in her life, reader, Meg hoped. And hope is like love. A ridiculous, wonderful, powerful thing. Meg tried to name this strange emotion. She put her hand up to touch one of her aching ears, and then she realized the feeling she was experiencing. The hope bloomed inside of her. It felt exactly the opposite of a good clout. She smiled and took her hand away from her ear. She waved to the princess. Today's my birthday, Meg called out. But the king and queen and princess were now too far away to hear. Today, shouted Meg, I'm seven years old. Chapter 27, A Wish. That night, in the small dark hut that she shared with Uncle and the sheep, Meg tried to speak of what she had seen. Uncle, she said, I saw some human stars today. How's that? I saw them all glittering and glowing. There was a little princess wearing her own crown and riding on a little white tippy-toed horse. What are you talking about, said Uncle. I saw a king and a queen and an itty-bitty princess, shouted Big. So, Uncle called back continued shyly. I, I wish to be one of them princesses. <laughs> Her uncle laughed. <laughs> An ugly dumb thing like you. You ain't worth even the enormous lot I paid for you. Don't I wish every night I had back that good hen red tablecloth in place of you? He did not wait for Meg to guess the answer to this question. I do, he said. I wish it every night. The tablecloth was the color of blood. That hen could lay eggs like nobody's business. I want to be a princess, said Meg. I want to wear a crown. A crown, Uncle laughed. She wants to wear a crown, he laughed harder. He took the empty kettle and put it atop his head. Look at me, he said. I am king, see my crown. I am king, just like I always wanted to be. I am king because I want to be one. And he danced around the hut with the kettle on his head. He laughed until he cried and then stopped dancing. And took the kettle from his head and looked at Meg and said, Do you want a good clout on the ear for such nonsense? No, no thank you, Uncle, said Meg. But she got one anyway. Look here, said Uncle after the clout had been delivered. We will speak no more of princesses. Besides, whoever asked you what you wanted in this world, girl? The answer to that question, reader, as you well know, was absolutely no one. 
Chapter 28, To the Castle Years passed. Mig spent them scrubbing the kettle and tending to the sheep and cleaning the hut and collect innumerable, uncountable, extremely painful clouts to the ear. In the evening, spring or summer, or summer or fall, Mig stood in the field at sunset, hoping that the royal family would pass by her once again. Gore! I would like to see that little princess another time, wouldn't I? And her little pony, too, with its tippy-toed feet. This hope, this wish, that she would get to see the princess again, was lodged deep into Meg's heart, lodged firmly right next to the hope that she, Megri Sow, could someday be a princess herself. The first of Meg's wishes was granted, in a roundabout way, when King Philip outlawed soup. The king's men were sent out to deliver the grim news and to collect from the people of the kingdom of Dor their kettles, spoons, and bowls. Reader, you know exactly how and why this law came to pass, so you would not be as surprised as Uncle was when, one Sunday, a soldier of the king knocked on the door of the hut that Mig and Uncle and the sheep shared and announced that soup was against the law. How's that? said Uncle. By royal order of King Philip, repeated the soldier. I am sent here to tell you that soup has been outlawed in the kingdom of Dor. You will, by order of the king, never again consume soup, nor will you think of it or talk about it. And as and I, as one of the king's royal servants, am here to take away from you your spoon, your kettle, and your bowls. But that can't be, said Uncle. Nevertheless, it is. What will we eat, and what will we eat it with? Cake suggested the soldier with a fork. And wouldn't that be lovely, said Uncle, if we could afford to eat cake. The soldier shrugged. I am only doing my duty. Please hand over your spoons, your bowls, and your kettle. Uncle grabbed hold of his beard. He let go of his beard, and he grabbed the hair on his head. Unbelievable, he shouted. I suppose the next thing the king will be wanting is my sheep and my girl, seeing as those are the only possessions I have left. Do you own a girl, said the soldier. I do, said uncle, a worthless one, but still she is mine. Ah, said the soldier, that I am afraid is against the law too. No human may own another in the kingdom of Dor. But I paid for her, fair and square, with a good laying hen, a handful of cigarettes, and a blood-red tablecloth. No matter, said the soldier, it's against the law to own another. Now will you hand over to me, if you would please, your spoons, your bowls, your kettle, and your girl. Or if you choose not to hand over these things, then you will come with me to be imprisoned in the castle dungeon. Which will it be? And that is how Megri Sow came to be sitting in a wagon full of soup-related items next to a soldier of the king. Do you have parents, said the soldier. I will return you to them. Huh? 
Ama, shouted the soldier. Dead, said Meg. Your pa, shouted the soldier. I ain't seen him since he sold me. Right. I'll take you to the castle then. Gore, said Meg, looking around the wagon in confusion. You, you want me to paddle? To the castle, shouted the soldier. I'll take you to the castle. The castle where the itty-bitty princess lives? That's right. Gore, said Meg. I aim to be a princess someday, too. That's a fine dream, said the soldier, and he chuckled to the horse and wrapped the reins, and they took off. I'm happy to be going, said Meg, putting a hand up and gently touching one of her cauliflower ears. Might as well be happy, seeing it doesn't make a difference to anyone but you, if you are or not, said the soldier. We will take you to the castle, and they will set you up fine. You no longer will be a slave. You will be a paid servant. Huh? said Meg. You will be a servant, shouted the soldier, not a slave. Gore, said Meg, satisfied. A servant I will be, not a slave? She was 12 years old. Her mother was dead. Her father had sold her. Her uncle, who wasn't really her uncle at all, had clouded her until she was almost deaf. And she wanted more than anything in this world to be a little princess wearing a golden crown and, and riding a high-stepped white horse. Reader, do you think that it is a terrible thing to hope when there is really no reason to hope at all? Or is it, as the soldier said about happiness, something that you might as well do since in the end it really makes no difference to anyone but you? Chapter 29. Start with the curtsy and finish with the thread. Migri Sow's luck continued. On her first day of the job as a castle servant, she was sent to deliver a spool of red thread to the princess. Mind, said the head of the serving staff, a dour woman named Louise. She is royalty and you must make sure you curtsy. How's that? shouted Meg. You must curtsy. Gore, shouted Meg. She took the spool of thread from Louise and made her way up the golden stairs to the princess's room, talking to herself as she went. Here I am, off to see the princess, me, Megary Sal, seeing the princess up close and personal-like. And first off, I must curtsy because she's the royalty. At the door to the princess's room, Meg had a sudden crisis of confidence. She stood for a moment, clutching the spool of thread and muttering to herself. Now, how'd that go? She said. Give the princess a thread and then give her a curtsy. No, 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 no. First the curtsy and then the thread. That's it. Gore. That's right. That's the order. Start with the curtsy finish with the thread. She knocked on the princess's door. Enter, said the pea. Meg, hearing nothing, knocked again. Enter, said the pea. And Meg, still hearing nothing, 
not again. Maybe, she said to herself, the princess ain't home. But then the door was flung wide, and there was the princess herself staring right at Miggery Sow. Go, said Mig, her mouth hanging open. Hello, said the pea. Are you the new serving maid? Have you brought me my thread? Curtsy, I must, shouted Mig. She gathered her skirt, dropped the spool of thread, stuck out a foot, stepped on the spool, rocked back and forth for what seemed like quite a long time, both to the watching princess and to the rocking Miggery sow, and finally fell to the floor with a Miggish thud. Whoopsie, said Miggery sow. The pea could not help it. She laughed. That's all right, she said to Meg, shaking her head. It's the spirit of things that count. How's that? shouted Meg. It's the spirit of things that count, shouted the pea. Thank you, miss, said Meg. She got slowly to her feet. She looked at the princess. She looked down at the floor. First curtsy, then the thread, Meg muttered. Pardon? said the pea. Cor, said Meg. The thread! She dropped her hands and knees to locate the spool of thread. Then she found it. She stood back up, offered it to the pea. I brought your thread, didn't I? Lovely, said the princess, and she took the thread from Meg. Thank you so much. I cannot seem to hold on to the spools of red thread. Every one I have disappears somehow. Are you making a thing? asked Meg, squinting at the cloth in Pea's hand. I'm making a history of the world, my world, said the Pea. In tapestry, see? Here's my father, the king, and he's playing the guitar because that is something he loves to do and does quite well. And here is my mother, the queen, and she is eating soup because she loved soup. Soup? Oh, that's against the law. Yes, said the princess. My father outlawed it because my mother died while eating it. Your ma's dead? Yes, said the pea. She died just last month. She bit her bottom lip and tried to stop it from trembling. Ain't that the thing, said Meg. My ma's dead too. <gasps> How old were you when she died? Bold was I, said Meg taking a step back away from the princess. I'm sorry then. No, no, no. How old? How old were you? shouted the pea. Not but six, said Mig. Oh, I'm sorry, said the princess. She gave Mig a quick, deep look of sympathy. How old are you now? Twelve years. So am I, said the princess. We're the same age. What's your name? she shouted. Miggery, Miggery Sal, but most just calls me Mig. And I saw you once before, princess. You passed by me on a little white horse on my birthday, it was. I was in the field with Uncle Sheep, and it was sunset. Did I wave to you? asked the princess. Huh? Did I wave? shouted the princess. Yeah, nodded Mig. 
But you didn't wave back, says the princess. I did, said Mig, only you didn't say me. And someday I will sit on a little white horse and wear a crown and wave, maybe, said Mig. And she put a hand to touch her left ear. I will be a princess too. Really? said the pea. And she gave Mig another quick, deep look, but said nothing else. When Meg finally made her way back down the golden stairs, Louise was waiting for her. How long, she roared, did it take you to deliver a spool of thread to the princess? Too long, guessed Meg. That's right, said Louise, and she gave Meg a good clout to the ear. You are not destined to be one of our star servants. That is already abundantly clear. No, ma'am said Meg. That's all right, because I'm to be a princess. You, a princess? Don't make me laugh. This reader was a little joke on Louise's part, as she was not a person who laughed, ever. Not even at a notion as ridiculous as Megri Sow becoming a princess. Chapter 30, To the Dungeon At the castle, For the first time in her young life, Meg had enough to eat, and eat she did. She quickly became plump, and then plumper still, and she grew rounder and rounder and bigger and bigger, only her head stayed small. Reader, as the teller of this tale, it is my duty from time to time to utter some hard and rather disagreeable truths. In the spirit of honesty, then, I must inform you that Mig was the tiniest bit lazy. And two, she was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. That is, she was a bit slow-witted. Because of these shortcomings, Louise was hard-pressed to find a job that Megory Sow could effectively perform. In quick succession, Meg failed as a lady-in-waiting. She was caught trying on the gown of a visiting duchess. A seamstress, she sewed the cloak of a writing master to her own frock and ruined both. And as chambermaid sent to clean the rooms, she stood open-mouthed and delighted, admiring the gold walls and floors and tapestries, and exclaiming over and over again, Oh, Gora, ain't they pretty? Gah, ain't they something? And did no cleaning at all. And while Mig was trying and failing at these many domestic chores, other important things were happening in the castle. The rat in the dungeon below was pacing and muttering in the darkness, waiting to take his revenge on the princess. And upstairs in the castle, the princess had met a mouse, and the mouse had fallen in love with her. Will there be consequences? (laughs) You bet. Just as Meg's inability to perform any job well had its consequences. For finally, as a last resort, Louise sent Meg to the kitchen, where Cook had a reputation for dealing effectively with difficult help. 
in the kitchen. Meg dropped eggshells in the pound cake batter. She scrubbed the kitchen floor with cooking oil instead of cleaner. She sneezed directly on the king's pork chop moments before it was served to him. Of all the good-for-nothings I have encountered, shouted the cook, surely you are the worst, the most cauliflowered ear, good-for-nothingest. There is only one place left for you, and that is the dungeon. Uh Uh-huh, said Meg, cupping a hand around her ear. You are being sent to the dungeon. You are to take the jailer his noonday meal. That will be your duty from now on. Reader, you know that the mice of the castle feared the dungeon. Must I tell you that the humans feared it too? Certainly, it was never far from their thoughts. In the warm months, a foul odor rose out of its dark depths and permeated the whole of the castle. And in the still, cold nights of winter, terrible howls issued from the dark space, as if the castle itself were weeping and moaning. It's only the wind, the people of the castle assured each other. Nothing but the wind. Many a serving girl had been sent to the dungeon, bearing the jailer's meal, only to return white-faced and weeping, hands trembling, teeth clattering, insisting they would never go back, and worse. There were whispered stories of those servant girls who had been given the job of feeding the jailer, who had gone down the stairs and into the dungeon, and who had never been seen or heard from again. Do you believe this will be Meg's fate? I hope not. What kind of story would this be without Meg? Listen, you cauliflowered ear fool, shouted the cook. This is what you will do. You will take the food tray down to the dungeon and you will wait for the old man to eat the food and then you will bring the tray back up. Do you think you can manage that? Ah, I reckon so said Meg. I take the old man the tray, and he eats what's on it, and then I bring the tray back up. Empty. It would be then. I bring the empty tray back up from the deep downs. That's right, said the cook. Seems simple, don't it? But I'm sure you will find a way to bungle it. Huh? said Meg. Nothing, said the cook. Good luck to you. You'll be needing it. She watched as Meg descended the dungeon stairs. They were the very same stairs, reader, that the mouse Despero had been pushed down the day before. Unlike the mouse, however, Meg had a light on the tray with the food. There was a single flickering candle to show her the way. She turned on the stairs, looking back, and smiled. That cauliflower-eared, good-for-nothing fool, said the cook, shaking her head. What's to become of someone who goes into the dungeon smiling, I ask you? Reader, for the answer to Cook's question, you must read on.